Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In this week's episode, Father Adam covers paragraphs 748 to 945, What is the Church? Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy! Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful. Grant us in the same Spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through the same Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So today, um, we're covering the Church, I believe, in the Holy Catholic Church, as we continue through the Creed. Uh, There's a lot to cover. We probably won't cover it all today, Um, but next week, we um, are covering Our Lady and the Saints, and that will give us an opportunity, I think, to finish up whatever we don't cover uh, this week. So the section um, of I believe in the Holy Catholic Church is in the third part of the creed. So we divide the creed into three sections. The first is I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. The second is I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son. And then the third is I believe in the Holy Spirit. Last week... uh, Last week, one of the uh, points that I was trying to hit, which the Catechism emphasizes, is that our profession of belief in the Holy Spirit entails a belief in the Church, a belief in the baptism and the forgiveness of sins, in the communion of saints, and in the life of the world to come. All those things that end the creed is really an affirmation of our belief in the Holy Spirit. Moreover, our belief in the Holy Spirit also entails the last three parts of the the catechism, the parts on the sacraments, on the moral life, and prayer, because it is the Holy Spirit who is the primary agent in those works in the work of our sanctification and our holiness and our response to what Jesus Christ has done. Another thing to kind of uh, bridge us into this section is in our last session we talked about the Holy Spirit and this joint mission of the Son and the Spirit so that from all eternity, of course, we profess that the Father sent the Son and the Holy Spirit, that they have been sent together, that they have this mission. Both have been sent. That's what mission means, is to be sent. And that in the economic trinity, in the visible trinity, in the work of God in the world, in creation, the Spirit and the Son are at work. Their mission is a joint mission closely united mission. We might even say almost one mission. 
with the ascension of Jesus Christ, that joint mission does not end. The Son and the Holy Spirit continue to work together, continue to be sent together through the body of Christ, the church. And so we could even say that there is a joint mission between the church and the Spirit, the church and the Holy Spirit. Throughout this section on the church, we're going to hear that emphasized again and again and again, how really the church's work is inseparable from the work of the Holy Spirit, just as Christ's work was inseparable from the work of the Holy Spirit. The answer to that, the reason for that, is, of course, is that the church is the ongoing presence and continuation of Christ's mission, of Christ's work. So just as Christ's work, Christ's mission was inseparable from the Holy Spirit, then the church's mission is inseparable from the mission of the Holy Spirit. A basic point, but again, it's one that I think needs emphasized again and again. So we start in paragraph 748 through paragraph 750, and it kind of traces for us the outline of this very long section on the church, which is almost 200 paragraphs long. So first, the catechism emphasizes the connection between the church and Christ. The Council, the Second Vatican Council, demonstrates that the article of faith about the church depends entirely on the articles concerning Christ Jesus. The church has no other light than Christ. According to a favorite image of the church's father, the church is like the moon. All of its light is reflected from the sun, from, the Christ, from Christ. So, Christ. So the church is inseparable from Christ. If we want to understand the church, we have to understand Christ. Which is why, and this is a point which um, I think I've reflected on in the last couple weeks going through um, the catechism, but also it's a point, I think, to keep in mind that the way that we answer who Jesus Christ is determines everything else. It determines, as the catechism is telling us in this paragraph, how we understand the church. So this idea that Jesus Christ is a divine person with a human and divine nature, that beautiful balance, mysterious balance even, um, helps us to then understand the nature of the church as well. I would also say that the way that we answer who Jesus Christ is is going to answer how we live in the world and our relationship to the world. But that's, um, that's a digression that we can't take. Um, in the next article, the Catechism tells us about the connection between the Church and the Holy Spirit. The article concerning the Church also depends entirely on the article about the Holy Spirit.
And then finally, there are these four marks of the church, the four marks of the church, which is, of course, that the church is holy, the Catholic, one, and apostolic, or one holy Catholic and apostolic. Those four marks are really going to be a large part of the structure of the catechism. So in this section on the church, we're first going to go through the names of the church, um, the sort of the, the development of revelation about the church, the relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to the church. Then we're going to go through the marks, these four marks of the church, which reveal the very nature of the church. And then finally, um, we're going to look at a very practical section on who constitutes the church. And it looks at the membership of the church. Okay, so the next paragraphs give us the name and the images for the church. The word church comes from the, or I should say we translate the Latin ecclesia and the Greek eklein, which means to be called out of or to be assembled. So an ecclesia is an assembly of people. Um, It's an assembly of people, a gathering of people. It's very similar, of course, um, to the Greek synagogue, to be gathered together. But it's an assembly, the assembly of the people. This is an an important title because it points to the fact that the church is the gathering of all peoples, all peoples redeemed by Christ, so that they might be united to the Father. The English word church which is probably taken from the German word kerka, seems to derive from the Greek kyriake, kyriake, which means what belongs to the Lord. So the church is on the one hand this assembly, this gathering together of people. On the other hand, it is what belongs to the Lord. So it's not just a gathering for the sake of gathering, but a gathering of those who belong to the Lord. We use the word church in three ways. One, to note the liturgical assembly. Sometimes in English we use the word congregation for this. Second, the local community, or sometimes, and we'll see this in a a paragraph down the road, what we call the particular church, the particular church. Sometimes it's referred to as the local church, but particular church is the better better phrase. It denotes the, the church present in a location, in a locale, um, such as what we would call the a diocese, the diocese, this, the local church or the particular church of Columbus. 
In both of those, both as a, a liturgical assembly and as a particular church, we use lowercase, usually, a lowercase c church. But the word also can denote the whole universal community of believers. And in that sense, we use the capital C Church. Of course, many different symbols are used for the church. The Lord provides many of them in his parables. So the church is, and the three most important that we kind of want to focus on, and which the catechism will um, kind of expound upon, almost to the point that they're more than just symbols, we, we might refer to them as models of the church, models for the church. The first is the people of God. So just like the Israelites in the Old Testament, using them as an image, as a symbol for the church. The second is the body, the body. And then the third is um, a group of images specifically taken from the parables of the Lord to denote either um, sort of life of a shepherd, agriculture, we might say in a more general way, because it also could include the cultivation of the land, um, construction of a building, or family life and marriage. So those are different images that are used, symbols for the church. So, you know, we have the parable of the sheepfold, or this sort of, you know, corral for sheep as the church, the flock itself as a symbol for the church, or a field, or a vineyard, or the vine itself, or an olive tree. We might use the temple or a house, a dwelling in which a family lives as the symbol. And then we might use the city of Jerusalem, a city um, as an image for the church. The next couple paragraphs talk about how the church has been instituted and prepared. So it talks about, first of all, how the church was always a part of the Father's plan. Now we've heard, you know, because of the very nature of the Trinity, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is this one community of three persons that the Father sends the Son and the Holy Spirit out as an expression of His love, as the very nature of His love, and that the Son and the Holy Spirit are returning back to the Father. We've also talked about how in the economic trinity, the Father sending the Son and the Holy Spirit into creation, into time, um, in order to gather up all creation back to Him. So it was always the Father's plan 
that creation and that the human race be gathered and united to him. Always his plan was this gathering. In that sense, then, the church is really at the heart of the Father's plan. The church was foreshadowed from the very world's beginning that he made the human person in communion to be fulfilled and to be completed in union with others. And that really all of the created world is made for this communion, but most especially the human person. And it's only by sin that division is entered into creation and into um, the human race. We talked about in the fall the disharmonies that are introduced. The church was prepared for in the Old Test in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. That continually, you know, we know that God designated this people for himself, the people of God. Israel. And that Israel points to the church a preparation for the church. We hear in paragraph 762, the remote preparation for this gathering together of the people of God begins when he calls Abraham and promises that he will become the father of a great people. So it's really at the heart of the beginning of the project of our salvation, the gathering of all people, the church. The church is instituted by Christ Jesus, we hear in paragraph 763. I think this is an important paragraph because one of the questions that I think we frequently ask ourselves, at least as we hear the Gospels read and as we hear homilies given, is the relationship between the church and this idea, this um, this subject which the Lord talks about quite often, the kingdom of God. So it was the Son's task to accomplish the Father's plan of salvation in the fullness of time. Its accomplishment was the reason for his being sent. The Lord Jesus inaugurated his church by preaching the good news, that is, the coming of the reign of God promised over the ages in the scriptures. To fulfill the Father's will, Christ ushered in the kingdom of heaven on earth. The church, and if we want a a nice kind of definition of church, of the church, the church is the reign of Christ already present in mystery. The reign of Christ already present in mystery. The church is the kingdom of God Present, already present here in mystery. The Lord gave a structure to the church, a structure that will remain until the kingdom is fully achieved. We see this in his calling and his appointment of the twelve and then of the other disciples who share in Christ's mission and his power. That points, of course, to the church 
sharing in the mission and the power of Jesus Christ. In 766, the church is born primarily of Christ's total self-giving for our salvation, anticipated in the institution of the Eucharist and fulfilled on the cross. One of my pet peeves, which I think I'll hit on a couple times this evening, is when is the birthday of the church? Um, Well, the catechism actually does not say that Pentecost is the birthday of the church. Um, it, it actually points to a couple other episodes as the birthday of the church. One of those is this idea that the birth of the church happens really in Christ's self-giving of salvation um, on the cross, that the church is born from the side of Christ on the cross when he is pierced in the side and blood and um, wine or, yeah, blood and water pour forth. And the church is present there in Our Lady and the beloved disciple. Paragraph 766 points to that, that it's really at the cross where we're mysteriously, of course, we're mysteriously present at the sacrifice of the cross, at the birth of the church in the Eucharist. So the church is born primarily of Christ's total self-giving for our salvation, foreshadowed in the Eucharist, in the present in the cross. The church is revealed by the Holy Spirit in 767 and 68. The Holy Spirit was sent on the day of Pentecost in order that he might continually sanctify the church. So the church already existed before Pentecost. But she received, and we use this feminine to receive the church because she is one of the models that is used as the bride of Christ. She is already present at Pentecost, but she receives that one by whom she will be sanctified and continually sanctified, namely the Holy Spirit. 768, so that she can fulfill her mission, the Holy Spirit bestows upon the church varied hierarchic and charismatic gifts, and in this way directs her. So at, the, at Pentecost, we could say that the mission of Christ handed on to the church is jointly united to the mission of the Holy Spirit. And then we're told that the church will be perfected in glory. Perfected in glory. 770, we've switched. We switch now to looking at the mystery of the church, her nature. So we've kind of looked at how the church came about at least her institution and her destiny. Now we kind of focus on the mystery of the church. The church is in history, but at the same time she transcends it. This is um, part of the great mystery of the church then. 
She's in history, but she transcends, transcends history. How is this possible? Well, because she's united to a divine person, to Jesus Christ. So the church is both visible and spiritual. As a visible organization through which the Lord communicates truth and grace to all men, the church is at the same time three things. Three things. One... It's a society structured with hierarchical organs and the mystical body of Christ. What the heck does that mean? So it's a society that is structured based on a hierarchy, but also something um, mysteriously united, even, um, we might even say, transcending hierarchy because of its union to Christ as the body of Christ. So, for instance, you know, we know that in the body, all of these different things are necessary. We can't really just say, well, we don't really need this or we really don't need that. But there is, in some sense, a structure within the body, too, of hierarchical organs. Number two, it is a visible society and a spiritual community. So we see everyone together. There is what we might say a public witness of being a member of the church, but also a spiritual communion. So even though we can account or do a census of all of the people in the church, we may not account for all of those who are spiritually united to the church. We can see that in a positive way and in a negative way. The positive way is that there may be people who are at union with the church that we are completely unaware of. We can see it in a negative sense that there may be people in the church in the visible society of the church who aren't really united to the church. And then, number three, the earthly church and the church endowed with heavenly riches. The earth, the pilgrim church, or the church, you know, here on earth, versus this church triumphant. So there's sort of both and, in all these kind of different dimensions. The church is the mystery of man's union with God. God's plan is to unite all things in him. Because the church is united to Christ as her bridegroom, she becomes a mystery in her turn. Because she is united to him as a bride and even as his very body, There is something mysterious then now about the church. We can't just reduce it to the visible. In paragraph 773, uh, the catechism makes, um, and it it may seem somewhat um, new or unfamiliar, 
a Marian dimension of the church versus a Petrine dimension of the church. So Our Lady, at the heart of the church, contributes something to the very nature of the church. We call this the Marian dimension. That Mary goes before us all in, our holy, in the holiness that is the church's mystery. As opposed to the Petrine, which is the more the more institutional church. So is this church of mysterious holiness, Mary kind of is the representative of this aspect. Then we also say that the church is the universal sacrament of salvation. Now, of course, we know the seven sacraments. These are these outward signs instituted by Christ to bestow grace. The church is, of course, not one of the seven sacraments, but is like a sacrament. It's like a sacrament. There are some Greek words, Greek and Latin words, that are thrown out in this section for us. First of all, the Greek word mysterion, which is the word used for sacraments. It was translated in, with two different terms, mysterion in Latin, Mysterium and sacramentum. So the sacramentum emphasizes the visible sign of something hidden. The mysterium emphasizes the hidden reality, the mysteriousness. So when we think of the sacraments, we should think of them as both mystery and sacrament, both visible sign and invisible reality. In the same way, the church is like those sacraments. There is this visible reality of the world that Christ, pointing to Christ's kingdom present. And then there is this invisible, this mysterious sense. So, in one way, the church is a sacrament in that it is this inner union of man with God, sort of this invisible sense of union which the world can't see. But then also, second, it is this sacrament of the unity of the human race, how the human race is somehow both visibly and invisibly United. In the next um, sections, the Catechism focuses on three images or three models to explain the church. Now, before we talked about some of these, um, some of these images, but there are three models. Now, these three models include what we might call minor models, but there are three. You, you can really understand the church, explain the church in three ways. We have to hold to all three. We can't pick and choose which ones we like. We have to really explain the church using all three. So the three are, first of all, that the church is the people of God, Second of all, that the church is the body of Christ. And third, that the temple, 
that the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, the church is the people of God. I think this is an important point, um, and the catechism makes an important point, why this is emphasized, why this model is emphasized, is that the Lord has, however, willed to make men and save them, not as individuals without any bond or link between them, but rather to make them into a people who might acknowledge him and serve him in holiness. So an important point which the Catechism wants to make, and I think which the Second Vatican Council really once wanted to make, and really the theology leading up to the Second Vatican Council, is we're not saved as individuals. We're not saved as individuals. While it is true we each have to personally embrace and accept the faith, we're not saved as individuals. We're saved as a community, as a people. Um, And, you know, it can become our tendency, because we're fixated on our problems, fixated on our sins, fixated on our own need to grow in holiness, fixated on our own subjective um, choice of the Lord, embracing of the Lord, um, that we're taking all of these things... Um, personally and individually, that we lose sight of the fact that actually we're made for communion, we're made for community, we're made for something more. Um, So this model of the people of God for the church emphasizes that for us. It helps us to understand this. A couple characteristics of this model is, first of all, Um, It is the people of God, which means God is not the property of any one person. Number two, one becomes a member of this people, not by physical birth, but by being born anew, the birth of baptism. Number three, the people has for its head Jesus Christ. Jesus is the King. He is the Messiah. And therefore, we are an anointed Messianic people. Number four, the status of this people is that of the dignity and freedom of the sons of God. We have a certain freedom by being members of this people. Number five, our law is the new commandment to love as Christ loved us. So as a people, we have received a law. Number six, its mission is to be the salt of the earth. So we have received a mission to be a light in the world. And then finally, as a people, we have a common destiny. It is the kingdom of God which has begun by God himself on earth and which must be further extended until it has been brought to perfection by him at the end of time. As the people of God, we are a priestly people, a prophetic people, and a royal people. As a priestly people, we are consecrated, consecrated to sanctify the world. As a prophetic people, we are called 
unfailingly to adhere to the faith and to witness to the faith with this supernatural sense of faith. And then finally, as a royal people, to exercise the Lord's kingship by drawing all men to him and by serving. The next model is this Christ, the church as the body of Christ. If the people of God emphasizes really our communion together as a people, this model emphasizes our communion with Jesus. It is a real communion, just as a body is with a head. How is this communion? How does it come about? How is it expressed? How is it lived? In the Eucharist, of course. Sometimes people get nervous, and I will even admit at times in my life, I get nervous when people overemphasize or talk a lot about this model, the the church as the body of Christ. Some people feel that it might slight the Eucharist, but at the heart of the church being the body of Christ, the only way that the church can be the body of Christ is because of Christ's gift of himself in the Eucharist and by our reception of his body and blood in the Eucharist. So we shouldn't see this as um, somehow taking away from the Eucharist. But in fact, it is possible because of the Eucharist. When his visible presence was taken from them, Jesus did not leave his disciples orphans, but rather he promised and he sent the Holy Spirit. We're going to hear um, in other points that the Spirit is the very soul of the church. That if the church is the body, if Christ is the head, then the um, Spirit is the soul, the soul of the church. Three points are also made um, about this, um, the comparison of the church with the body. First of all, it emphasizes for us the unity of all the members with each other. And that this unity happens because of our union with Christ. Second, this model helps us to understand, to emphasize that Christ is the head of the body. That he's the boss, we might say. Lest we forget that. And then this also sets up what we might call another model or a minor model, namely that the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ because she is the body of Christ. So we might say that there are three implications from this model. The first is that that means that there's only one body, that we're really united with each other. It helps us to give a mature sense of the life of the church, to get over divisions, and to recognize the diversity of members and the diversity of gifts. This second implication is that Christ is the head. He is the boss. As the head, we we are reminded that Christ... um, 
unites us with his Passover, that he unites us by his death. Number two, that Christ provides for our growth, that he's guiding the church, really, and guiding us as members of the church. And that third is that Christ and his church thus together make up the whole Christ, what we call Christus totus, the whole Christ. The church is one with Christ. And then finally, this, um, this other model, which flows from Christ, from the church as the body of Christ, is that the church is the bride of Christ. It helps us understand that there is something, even though the whole Christ is Christ the head and the church, that they are distinct. There's a distinction between Christ the head and the church of the members. But yet there is this personal relationship between the two. The final model which is proposed to us is that the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What the soul is to the human body, the Holy Spirit is to the body of Christ, which is the church. This particular model helps us to emphasize how the church and the Holy Spirit are united, how they work together. He works in many ways, the Holy Spirit works in many ways to build up the whole body in charity by God's Word, which is able to build you up by baptism, through which He forms Christ's body. So, how is it that the Holy Spirit builds up the body of the church? How is it that He's present? Well, we saw this in part when we went over the Holy Spirit, but the Catechism here emphasizes a couple points. So, the Holy Spirit is particularly seen in, in his unity with the church in God's word, in the scriptures and tradition, and, and I would even say with the magisterium that hands on that word. Two, in particular in baptism. Three, in all the rest of the sacraments. Four, in the grace of the apostles. Five, in the virtues, the holiness of the church, especially in the lives of the saints. And then sixth, in the special graces present in the church, in the charisms. And then in paragraph 799 through 801, I'm not going to go over them um, in detail, but 799 through 801 is where the charisms these extraordinary, sometimes simple, humble gifts of the Holy Spirit for the building up the, of the church. The Lord, or the Catechism rather, um, explains those succinctly. Um, there's some other references to the charisms um, in other parts, especially in the morality section of the Catechism. So we finished up those three models, those three important models used um, to describe the nature of the church. So we had 
the temple of the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ, and with it, the bride of Christ. And then um, the third was the people of God, the people of God. Uh, One point, I think, to make about the people of God is when we reflect on that um, particular, um, particular model, I think we have to keep in mind the Old Testament. So the Old Testament people of God, the Israelites, point to, they prefigure the church as the people of God. So the things that are relevant about the people of God in the Old Testament point to a fulfillment in the church. So it's a good way to read the Old Testament. As we look at the history of Israel, um, of the institutions of Israel, of the customs, the traditions, the law of Israel, it parallels and points to the church. Of course, the church is the fulfillment of that, um, but it ultimately points to that. So now then, the catechism will launch into the marks, the four marks of the church, that the church is one, holy, and Catholic. These four characteristics, inseparably linked with each other, indicate essential features of the church and her mission. The church does not possess them of herself. It is Christ who, through the Holy Spirit, makes his church one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And it is he who calls her to realize each of these qualities. So that's an important thing to reflect on, is that these marks ultimately are the marks of Christ. The church has these marks, not on her own, but because she is united to Christ. And even more, they don't just describe the church, but also her mission as well. And I think that's an important, um, important point, is that the church is inseparable from her mission. Just as the Holy Spirit is inseparable from his mission, and the Son is inseparable from his mission. The The Son and the Spirit are sent out. It's their very nature to be sent out. It's why they're distinctive. The church is is inseparable from her mission. It's why she exists. These um, marks, rather, um, also are motives of credibility. So when we see that the church is one and holy, and Catholic, and apostolic, it moves us to greater faith, to greater belief. When we see that the church has survived with some sort of unity all of these years, with some sort of holiness all of these years, it should move us to believe. We should marvel at it just like those uh, miracles of healing or wonders and awe. These are also motives of credibility, that what the church is saying and what Christ has taught is somehow legitimate. 
So first, let us go um, to the church as one, to the uni- to unity. What does this mean? This unity. Um, well, first of all, it means that the church is one because of her source. She is one because of her founder. She is one because of her soul. So as we said, these marks, first of all, describe Christ. So because Christ is her origin and the Holy Spirit is her soul, there is this unity, this oneness. But this unity, this oneness, also is marked by a great diversity. A diversity of God's gifts, of those who receive them, of peoples and cultures gathered together, of different gifts, offices, conditions, and ways of life. Um, That all of these diversities um, don't chip away at the unity, but in fact they, they point to the unity. That all of, of, all of these diversities, um, all of this diversity rests in one body. The unity of the Pilgrim Church is also assured by visible bonds of communion. Um, so there are things which not just assure but really point to the union the unity. So the Catechism points out three of these. First of all, the profession of one faith received by the apostles. Second, the common celebration of divine worship, especially the sacraments. And three, the apostolic succession through the sacrament of holy orders, maintaining the fraternal concord of God's family. These three things on the one hand, we might say, are the visible signs of union, but on the, on the other hand, they, they kind of protect, they perfect that harmony, that unity. So a oneness and profession of faith, which has been received from the apostles, the common celebration of divine worship, especially of the sacraments, and then third, this apostolic succession through the sacraments of holy order. In paragraph 816, there is an important point, and that is this one church subsists, the one church founded by Jesus Christ subsists in the Catholic Church, which is governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. So when we talk about the one church, we talk about it as subsisting in the Catholic Church, or that it exists within or as the Catholic Church. Um, Now, this is a controversial point. It may not seem very controversial to us here gathered, um, but I'm sure that there are um, many who would disagree with this point. But this is the teaching of the Second Vatican Council, 
Um, it is the teaching of, of, the, of the church throughout time that there is one church and that it subsists, that it exists and continues um, to be in the world in the Catholic Church under the successors of Peter and the bishops in communion with him. Now, with that being said, there is, of course, um, division, a lack of unity in the church, wounds to unity. And the next couple um, paragraphs in the catechism look at particularly what we might um, talk about themes connected to ecumenism. So the fact that there isn't unity comes about sometimes because of of sin, namely these three sins, heresy, apostasy, and schism. Heresy, of of course, is denying of the, the true faith. Apostasy is denying, leaving the practice of, of the faith. And then schism is um, breaking physical, visible unity with the church. Now, these original, um, those who have ruptured the unity of Christ's body through those three sins, um, should be distinguished from those who are separated from communion with the Catholic Church by their own kind of state in life. So what's the distinction here that the catechism is making? The catechism distinguishes, say, Martin Luther or John Calvin or Arius or Eutyches from Lutherans a generation later, or Calvinists 500 years later, or, you know, Monophysites 300 years later. Of course, it wasn't necessarily by their particular sin or by their particular choice that they're not united to the church. So we have to keep that distinction in mind. The Catechism emphasizes us, emphasizes this point. Um, In paragraph 819, Furthermore, many elements of sanctification and of truth are found outside the visible confines of the Catholic Church. So there are many good things that other Christians are doing who are not visibly united to the Catholic Church. But ultimately, these things and the means of salvation derive their power from the Catholic Church. So those good things that the Protestants are doing or that the Orthodox are doing or that other um, Christian groups are doing can and ought and are found in the Catholic Church and find and derive their power and authority and authenticity because of the Catholic Church. But they exist, these, um, perhaps the Lord has permitted these groups to remind us of the importance of these different, these different gifts in the life of the Catholic Church.
In the next couple paragraphs, then the catechism says, what is to be done? How do we move towards unity? And it emphasizes um, seven different things. Among those is um, a permanent renewal in the church and a greater fidelity to what the church is supposed to be about, a conversion of heart as the faithful, prayer in common, fraternal knowledge of each other, ecumenical formation of the faithful and of priests, dialogue through theologians and through meetings, collaboration among Christians in different various areas of service. Now, we have three more marks which we're going to finish, and I think it's kind of fitting that we do finish them um, with the next, next week with the sections on um, Mary and the saints. The section on Mary and the, Mary and the saints is going to entail, really, it's, it's a part of this section on the church, although some of the Mary part we're going to flip back to the moment of the Incarnation, which I think will be good in this season of Advent. Um, But we're going to finish then um, to begin with those sections, looking at the church as holy, the church as Catholic, and the church as apostolic. And in particular, I think, flowing from the apostolic, the hierarchical nature of the church. And then um, with the communion of saints and with Mary. So um, we'll continue there. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it, or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless, and have a great day. Our family has spanned the centuries and the globe. With God's grace, we started hospitals to care for the sick. We established orphanages and helped the poor. We are the largest charitable organization on the planet, bringing comfort to those in need. We educate more children than any other institution. We developed the scientific method and founded the college system. We defend the dignity of human life and uphold marriage. Guided by the Holy Spirit, we compiled the Bible. We are transformed by sacred scripture and sacred tradition, which have guided us for 2,000 years. We are the Catholic Church. With over one billion in our family, sharing in the sacraments and fullness of the Christian faith, Jesus started our church when he said to Peter, the first pope, You are rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. So if you've been away from the Catholic Church, we invite you to take another look 
Visit catholicscomehome.org today. We are Catholic. Welcome home.